Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shaped the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with North Korea's special envoy, Joseph Detrani. Ambassador Joe Detrani spent two decades in the Central Intelligence Agency addressing issues of peace and security in East Asia. He was director of East Asia operations, the mission manager for North Korea, then in 2010, was appointed as the director of the National Counterproliferation Center and special advisor to the director of national intelligence. But unlike most career intelligence officers, Ambassador Detrani stepped out from behind the shadows to work on a very public diplomatic effort in 2003, the six-party talks to curb North Korea's dangerous nuclear weapons and missile program. Here's President George W. Bush speaking about those dangers just after Pyongyang's first nuclear test. Last night, the government of North Korea proclaimed to the world that it had conducted a nuclear test. We're working to confirm North Korea's claim. Nonetheless, such a claim itself constitutes a threat to international peace and security. The United States condemns this provocative act. Once again, North Korea has defied the will of the international community, and the international community will respond. In his conversation with me, Ambassador Detrani explains his working relationship with Chinese intelligence officers over several decades and how the shared U.S.-China interest in working to halt Pyongyang's nuclear and missile program spurred Chinese diplomats to take a leadership role in addressing a key regional and global threat. Ambassador Joe Detrani, thanks so much for taking time out. Great to see you again. I wanted to just start about your initial impressions going to China for the first time, what it was like and what you thought you were getting yourself into. You know, the first time I went to China, it was 1980. And uh, wow, it was quite something, you know, because actually being there, being in Beijing, then going to Shanghai, it was cold, a lot of bicycles. It was sort of bleak, to be very honest with you. It had that element there. When I was assigned there in 1984, it was so different although they were still in the throes of uh, coming out of the Cultural Revolution. We had Deng Xiaoping in 78 and then normalization in 79. So China was really sort of moving in, that, in a dynamic way. But again, in 80, 80 81, th- that, that momentum had not kicked in. So I've heard people, we'll get to your North Korea time a little bit later, but I've heard people compare North Korea when they went in the last few years to China in the 70s and 80s. You've been to both. Do you think that's a fair comparison? Was there was there some similarities that you'd see in those in China 1980, uh, North Korea, more modern times? You know, and I hear from uh, many of my uh, Chinese uh, colleagues, former colleagues, uh, friends who know North Korea, who have been assigned to North Korea, they... Uh, they uh, would occasionally say, Joe, you have to be aware that we know North Korea well, not only because we have a peace and friendship treaty with them, but we, uh, we've we gone through the Cultural Revolution. We know how it is when it's difficult. And, and, and at least going back a few years ago, I'm not talking about Kim Jong-un now, certainly this was Kim Jong-il, they say their comparisons are there. It was a bit like what I remember in 1980, 81, uh, n- not a lot of vehicles, 
bicycles. But China is so different than North Korea. I, I just think the comparisons are really not there. May, I, I think maybe for uh, Chinese colleagues would say maybe the political uh, overtones were there in the Cultural Revolution and what's going on in North Korea as we speak or most recently. People are different. In China, there was uh, still there was that element, uh, I always thought, especially over a meal, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. of enthusiasm, vibrancy, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of collegiality. I, I felt it was a bit dire when I visited uh, uh, Pyongyang, even even then. But I, I think it's changed. Over the years when I went back, it, it, it changed. Uh, and those who are certainly visiting Pyongyang now say it's, uh, it's changed in a very significant way. <laughs> So your first trip in 1980, wow, really early on. I mean, it was really opening. on. That was yep. just the opening. We just normalized relations. Mm-hmm. Deng Xiaoping was kicking in with uh, economic reforms. It was a very it was a very interesting period because there was an element of enthusiasm mm-hmm. there. So then you moved there later in the decade in, in 84, the 84. I was assigned there. And how much your discussions with Chinese counterparts or just Lao Baixing, people on the street. Did people talk about the Cultural Revolution or what was happening? How, how, did you feel like you could peek a little bit beyond the, the, the bamboo curtain? This is the thing about China that I've always felt. I feel that way uh, today. Uh, having some of the language, you know, I, I spoke Chinese at that time and I still do, and uh, with a smile on your face and being sensitive to cultural norms and, and behavior patterns and, and so forth. You don't, no one wants to be obnoxious, right? <laughs> uh, I found the people very open, very receptive. Uh, we would take trips out of Beijing to get to see the countryside and everything, and it was just great. I was surprised. I didn't think they would be that open and that friendly, and especially to Americans, I felt. Uh, but also with the officials, I might add. The officials were prepared to talk business. Uh, on, on national security issues, we, as long as it's in uh, our mutual interest, and we did some great work in Afghanistan, we did some great work on, on, on counterproliferation and counterterrorism. I mean, w- we really were able to connect on issues that uh, both countries viewed as uh, important for their national security. So when you were there in the 80s, the kind of big issue was the Soviet Union, and it was in some ways what brought our two countries together in, in Nixon's opening. What was the discussion like? What was the uh, China was opening up, the Soviet Union was kind of opening up some, but still there was a lot of animosity there. How, how did you did you feel that U.S. and Chinese views of the Soviet Union were pretty well aligned at that point in yes, the 80s? Yes, I did. I did. I uh, I found the uh, Chinese officials uh, to be uh, very receptive. And on the issue, certainly, of the Soviet Union, and indeed, uh, in regards to what the Soviet Union was doing in Afghanistan. So we had a mutuality of interests and the ability to come together and to talk about those things. I, 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 don't, think, uh, I don't think the Soviets were surprised with that because of their, you know, their blatant aggression in, in, in Afghanistan and what it meant to the region. I mean, this was... Almost the Soviet uh, Brezhnev doctrine where, you know, we're just going to, if we want to project power, we're going to project power. Well, they, they failed in Afghanistan. And part of the failure in Afghanistan is, uh, is the ability of the, not only the United States, but certainly of China and other countries to come together to say, this won't stand. And Moscow, uh, Moscow, Moscow got the message, finally. 
Was it your sense at that time in the 80s, talking about Afghanistan, that the level of knowledge in the Chinese system was particularly high about, frankly, any place outside of China? I mean, they had been so closed off for so many years, and then they're faced with uh, this conflict right on their border. How knowledgeable would you say their, their, their experts were in what was happening in Afghanistan? I was always impressed with, the, with, the, with the, um, their knowledge base. The people I work with, and I think many in the embassy work with, were very uh, professional, well-informed. What surprised me the most was there wasn't this element of uh, trepidation or concern that we don't want to get too close to the Americans because, you know, they're, they're bad. They're, it was a sense that this is an opening. And I guess that's Deng Xiaoping, right? Mm-hmm. This is an opportunity. And it was almost uh, a more collegial approach to some of these issues. And they were, one, very professional, two, very well informed, and three, very receptive to different analytical views. And uh, occasionally, or more than occasionally, our analytic assessments were not the same. Mm-hmm. But that was the strength of it. And I think they appreciated that, as we do. We, no one wants groupthink, right? Right. And I think, um, so I was impressed right from the get-go. So I guess I would ask, you were there in the mid-80s at the kind of height in some ways of the kind of Cold War relationship between the U.S. and China against the Soviet Union. Gorbachev goes to Beijing in 1989. Some other things happen in June 1989 in in Beijing. There's the Tiananmen Square crackdown. Uh, In subsequent discussions, with the Chinese officials in the 90s. Did you feel like that shared sense of mission or that that uh, camaraderie might be too strong, but that those relationships were somehow under more of a strain because of what happens in Tiananmen or as long as there were shared interests could move forward with the no, United good States? Good question, James. No, I didn't notice any, uh, any reluctance on the part of our, our interlocutors, our uh, counterparts to engage. Uh, on, the, on the contrary, I, I, I think... Uh, you know, we're looking at China now that in, in 97, and that we had reversion in 97, July of 97. That was the return of Hong Kong, Hong Kong to uh, Chinese yeah, exactly. sovereignty. Exactly. So, and there were, you know, that was after uh, Deng Xiaoping's visit in 92 to the south, where he made it very, short, very clear to the Chinese leadership and the people of China that uh, economic reforms are still on the table, and this is where we're going, and this is what it's meant to be. Obviously, he had opposition, and he prevailed. And some of the people I dealt with in the mid-'80s were there in the mid-'90s. So I was dealing with uh, some of the same, but not all. Most of them were different players, but they were just as open, uh, just as willing to work on issues of, uh, of mutual concern whether it's counterproliferation, counterterrorism, and, and it was the Soviet uh, incursions into Afghanistan. These were common interests, uh, issues that were uh, more sensitive. Uh, some of our other colleagues in the embassy may have been discussing. They, they may have touched human rights. There was a sense that uh, China was, was moving in, in, in those different directions in a very positive way. We saw dynamic leadership coming out of Beijing at the top. That was Jiang Zemin. Zhu Rongji. Zhu Rongji. There you go. That's uh, on the economic side. There is the movement on the economic side. Uh, No, these were were interesting times. That was a time when China was crossing the river by feeling the stones, and there was some experimentation and step forward and step back. The China of today seems a little bit less interested in the way the rest of the world works. Do you think that level of curiosity and inquisitiveness and 
openness to outside ideas is still there today, or do you feel like that that that's a period of time that's now in the history books? In the uh, 80s, with Deng Xiaoping coming out and saying, look, we have to study from the United States, send students to the United States. I mean, in 1997, and now you're asking about 2018, China has gone through this period of time where they're saying, okay, we feel we're a responsible actor. We're a responsible player. We feel we've, we've, we still have to interact. We, there's still much to learn. You never stop learning. You, you have to engage and all that. But I think more so than in the past, even in the past, China didn't like to be lectured to. Whether it was the mid-'80s or the mid-'90s, don't lecture. Please, and they, they, you could just see people being, you know, the eyes glossing out. The Americans are here. They're going to give us a 25-minute lecture, whatever the subject may be. So, so I think China is, is, is at the stage in 2018 saying, you know, let's not lecture. Let's talk. We have some issues. Some of those issues are a little, you know, contentious because we are economic competitors, but we don't have to be competitors in other areas. We can come together. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with the economic competitiveness. It, the, the, the consumer benefits on that. <laughs> Whoever produces a better product that's uh, more reasonable is going to prevail. So we're dealing with a different China, a China that feels more comfortable with themselves, a China that feels they can compete. So I think China has spent uh, a few decades doing what's necessary to catch up. Now, that shouldn't include uh, intellectual property areas, <laughs> stealing any of that. And I think President Xi Jinping, uh, in discussions with President Trump and before that with President Obama, is addressing those issues there. But I think there was this sense of, you know, we've been beat up for 150 years with the 100 years of humiliation and all that stuff. We're catching up. The only thing that, uh, in some of my conferences with think tanks in China, that always put me off a bit was a sense that uh, conflict could be inevitable. Conflict between the United States yes, and China. Yes, I would have said, why are you saying that? We've been able to get together since 1978, certainly since 1972, uh, Chairman Mao, President Nixon. We've come together in such a uh, powerful way. We were a, a major advocate for China moving in that direction and, and very happy with what China has done. So why would, and I heard it a number of times, and we see it in some of the literature. Why are you saying conflict is inevitable? And, and I think that's an issue that we have to sort of address. The people of our respective countries shouldn't feel that conflict is inevitable. They shouldn't feel that we're going into a new Cold War. And why do you think on the Chinese side that kind of persists? You know, I, I, I think there are different voices on this coming out of the Chinese side. I think the majority of people feel we've worked through these issues before. We've been there with China when they were coming out. Uh, you know, out of a bad period, let's face it, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, and, and, and Deng Xiaoping moved them in that direction. And we were there, and, and we worked on issues of mutual concern, and we've been successful working those issues. So why can't we continue to, to come together on these issues? I think uh, at least those who advocate or believe that conflict is inevitable, look at the recent history, if you will, 100, 150 years and from that view, say, well, if we're too competitive, if we're too advanced in scientific, technological, but other areas also, uh, would that be viewed as a threat to the United States and maybe others, the European Union, uh, which would be wrong. I, mean, I think if I were looking at it, uh, conversely, I think from the U.S. side, we look at the South China Sea, the East China Sea, and we're saying, now, wait a minute, is, is China trying to so not only catch up, but it's trying, it's trying to say, this is imperial China. 
So that's where we both sides have to moderate their behavior and come together because we don't want to stumble into something that is not in anyone's interest. I always thought one of the challenges is the some Chinese textbooks that kind of whitewash over U.S.-China relations in a way that's kind of not very helpful, and I, I kind of I worry about the way some Chinese are brought up to have this sense of inevitability or that the United States is predestined to try to stop China from growing. That isn't very helpful. And those who, are, and especially if those, those, some of those individuals are teachers in, in universities and middle schools, high schools, uh, they're not really reading contemporary history very well in regards to U.S.-China relations because the U.S. has always been there for China. And we've worked well together on that. For them to, to sort of... Uh, to uh, uh, assume that the, uh, the, as long as uh, the U.S. Is, is, is the dominant actor, uh, things will be fine. Uh, I, I think that's, that's being presumptuous, and I, I think they're flat out wrong, to be honest with you. Now, uh, of course, there's a Chinese constituency. There's 1.3 billion people. Politics is domestic, right? So it's domestic in the United States. It's domestic in China also. So I, I would think the leadership in China has to play to that domestic audience. And part of that is... The hundred years of humiliation and some of the other things that that have transpired. Uh, some of it could be uh, we see the South China Sea, the East China Sea. We see the intellectual property issue and some of that as uh, you know prima facie cases where you know th- there's a problem here, uh, and 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 that's where uh, I think the leadership has to come in play and the media to some extent because it reaches out to the 1.3 billion people and the three over 300 million people in the United States. Uh, of of what the issues are and how we work through it. In fact, that's why we have diplomacy, isn't it? So I tend to be optimistic in this area, but it takes time, it takes work, and it's not a given. One of those areas of cooperation that I want to move to is uh, North Korea. And how did you end up kind of working on North Korea as someone who spent a fair amount of time working working on China? How how did that kind of come about? Yeah, I asked that same question, James. (laughs) I said... I left the uh, CIA in 2003. I was uh, chief of East Asia, uh, uh, director there. Uh, And I worked very closely with the Chinese and others, but it was the whole of East Asia. And we were were looking at North Korea because they had a a nascent nuclear program, missile program, and some of the other issues there. Uh, uh, Secretary uh, Colin Powell and uh, Deputy Secretary Rich Armitage reached out to me and said we uh, were looking for a special envoy to work with uh, to work on the six body talks, and I asked the same question you asked. I said, but you know, I'm not a Korean linguist. China is my area, and they said, you know what, we need someone who's worked with China, who knows the region, and could sort of hit the ground running. And there's no real major learning curve here. But the key was who has worked with China, because China, as you know, was the uh, was the the uh, chair of the six-party talks. They had the leadership role in bringing the six parties together. I mean, you got to give China credit for that. In 2002, things fell apart. Uh, North Korea pulled out of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. We stopped building light water reactors at Kumho, no heavy fuel oil. So the agreed framework was dead. Just for a history lesson, the agreed framework, talk well, about the six-party talks. Well, the agreed framework, 1994. In 1993, the IAEA uh, in North Korea was looking at Yongbyon and saw anomalies. And, and the North Koreans were very upset with the IAEA monitors and told them to leave and threatened Seoul with the Sea of Ashes. And 
that we were looking at conflict on the Korean Peninsula in 1993. It was President Jimmy Carter, uh, who uh, fortuitously was in, in North Korea, and Billy Graham introduced him to Kim Il-sung, and that was the beginning of the Geneva Talks. And it was Ambassador Bob Gallucci uh, with Kang Suk-joo and Kim Gae-gwan. They came up with the agreed framework, which was North Korea would freeze their plutonium facility at Yongbyon, and we still hear about Yongbyon today. <laughs> they would freeze that facility. They had over 8,000 spent fuel rods. They would not reprocess anything. And the reprocessing is for pulling plutonium out, out for, for uh, weapons. weapons. Mm-hmm. Plutonium-based nuclear weapons. They would freeze that. And we said we would provide them with two light water reactors, 1,000 megawatt reactors. And we'd build them in Kumho, North Korea, that was civilian nuclear capabilities. So they need the energy. And in the interim, as we're building them, we give them heavy fuel oil. So you freeze everything at Yongbyon. Once you get the light water reactors, and then you just dismantle. Everything is dismantled at Yongbyon. That was the agreed framework. It fell apart in 2002 because they had a uranium enrichment program, which was in violation, certainly the spirit of the agreed framework. And that's when we pulled out of, the, by not... <laughs> not uh, providing heavy fuel oil and not continuing with the construction of the light water reactors. And then North Korea pulls out of the nuclear non-proliferation. And the key, though, is your your question. Over 8,000 spent fuel rods were being reprocessed for nuclear weapons. A very tense period in the early 2003 time frame. And we reached out to China, and then China uh, convened a meeting between North Korea, the United States, and China hosting that. It was the beginning of the six-party talks. I think you'd mentioned this is pretty unique for China to really take a leadership role and recognize a international security issue and say, we're going to put ourselves out and we're going to convene this. Absolutely. What do you think brought the Chinese to that kind of leadership role at that at that moment? A good point, because this was really the first time that China really came on the stage and said, we, we, we're taking the lead on this. And, and they put a lot into working the six-party process. They convened the meetings. I can't say enough about what Wang Yi and all his colleagues were doing on that. I, I think China at that time, and we see it now in spades in 2018, but in 2003, China was saying, look, we're moving economically. We've got a, you know, a dynamic country there. Uh, we want to take ownership of these security issues, certainly in our region, right, North, Northeast Asia. Um, this, is a, this, is our, this is, you know, our neighborhood. And they took leadership role, and I think it was, in relative terms, successful. I did. We do have a we we got a joint statement in two thousand five September, and that was a lot of that work was uh, Wu Dawei, who was their lead negotiator. But it was a uh, uh, foreign minister now, foreign minister Wang Yi, who was presiding over it. What what is in that kind of joint statement? What what did that kind of lay down? It was really significant. Uh, where uh, you know North Korea agreed to uh, dismantle and. Uh, disable all of their nuclear weapons programs uh, in return for in return for security assurances uh, economic development assistance and the key here is eventual normalization of relations with the United States with Japan South Korea i mean that's that's really the crux of it there and they have agreed to monitors coming in the monitoring necessary to verify that the, these facilities are being dismantled Economic development, what sort of economic development? Because we wanted North Korea to be part of the, uh, have access to the international financial institutions, right? I mean, that was part of it. They were looking for investment and things like, which they still are, right? So it was, I think, a very comprehensive 
It took us over two years to go there. A lot of work. Uh, Wu Dawei and the rest of the Chinese MFA team, how did they kind of organize themselves and conceive of it and then execute it so that the other five parties would be there and that at the end of the day, in, in, in 2005, the North Koreans would sign on the dotted line. Kind of, what did you see about that aspect? A lot of, of work. It? A lot of work. It was really sort of hurting cats and, you know, because we, everybody's sort of out there doing their own thing. And now you have to bring them together. It's not only like bringing them together at a certain time. It's bringing them together so that we would accomplish certain goals and we all had certain goals and objectives. And, you know, sometimes working with the North Koreans, they tend to be a little temperamental. They don't show up for meetings. And you say, wait a minute, I thought we had a meeting here. Uh, the U.S. could be somewhat temperamental. Uh, when we started in 2003, you know, I don't think we want to meet properly with them. And we said, wait a minute. Chinese said, well, how are you going to get any business done if you're not going to be meeting with them? I mean, don't you want any one-on-ones? I mean, can you look at them? <laughs> can you shake their hands? Okay, if they put their hand out, would you shake? So so we went This is in the atmosphere, it's, sorry, of the of the... <laughs> breakdown of the agreed framework in which Absolutely. some in the U.S. administration just felt that the North Koreans were completely untrustworthy That's, because they had uh, and, cheated and, on the and, last and, agreement. And, 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 you know, a lot of that was justified <laughs> because the fact of the matter is they should not have had that uranium enrichment program, and they denied having that program. Well, you asked how we came about with the joint statement. I mean, China brought a lot of players together. We, we, we almost got to a joint statement in, in 2004. Uh, but because of the wording, uh, we didn't get there. So here you have uh, Wang Yi and, uh, and the foreign minister coming in at that time uh, and, and others with the media there. A little embarrassing, but uh, it was sometimes difficult. So China went through a, a, a hard period here. They did come up with the joint statement where we all came together. We tried to get in the joint statement mention of, a mention of the, uh, the uranium enrichment program. So we, we were looking at language that said they would dismantle all of their nuclear weapons programs to include their uranium enrichment program, which the North Koreans refused because they denied having that program. So we just said with all of their programs. The fact of the matter is in 2010, they brought Sig Hecker, who was the former director of Los Alamos, and showed them a significant uh, uranium enrichment facility at Yongbyon with over 2,000 centrifuges which they said was going to be low-enriched uranium for uh, civilian uh, uh, nuclear purposes, energy purposes. Uh, so they did have the program, but that's all right. I mean, it's, it's all right. In, in retrospect, uh, we did have a good joint statement. We did start moving with the dismantlement of Yongbyon. Uh, it fell apart in 2008 because they wouldn't sign an, a piece of paper permitting monitors to leave the Yongbyon facility and visit a non-declared suspect nuclear facilities, and that was something we needed. Part of the joint statement was to not only have the declared facilities, but have some ability to look at other parts of North Korea to make sure that programs weren't hidden. Absolutely. And for the U.S., this was a required element. And for the North Koreans, this was something they had a hard time swallowing. (laughs) They they wouldn't sign that piece of paper. And that was the end of the the end. So there you go, the six-party talks, the end of 2000 and eight, the beginning of 2009, ended on that note. That's too bad because a lot of work, as with the agreed framework, a lot of work went into that. The uh, six-party talks, a lot of work went into that. Now, mind you, we had five countries working with North Korea. And again, that's, I give China credit for that. They pulled that off. They brought it together and, and, you know, and we would always tell the Chinese, you know, they're your ally. Just tell them to, and the Chinese would be very insistent. I think we could appreciate that now after having worked with the North Koreans all these years saying, 
you know, we could request certain things, but we can't tell them anything. <laughs> they may not do it. <laughs> um, you'd kind of talked about the long relationship between North Korea and China. Lips and teeth, I think, is the way Lips Mao described it. A lot of North Korea-China relations on the China side had been conducted on kind of Communist Party to Communist Party. Right. Could you just say in the six-party talks, where was that party-to-party relationship? How did that kind of manifest itself? Uh, you know, the for the North Koreans in the six-party process, certainly when we had plenary sessions in Beijing at the state guest house, uh, they would reconvene. And, and the sense we had is they were going back to Pyongyang and getting their instructions. And... and, and, and uh, I, there was no doubt in our mind that those instructions were coming from the highest levels of the government in Pyongyang. And, and Kim Jong-il was following these discussions. I, I would imagine that the party element to those talking points for the negotiators uh, was pretty significant, pretty significant. Now, sitting at the table, they may have had uh, someone from the Ministry of State Security. I, I think they all answered to the party. But I don't think it was, um, it didn't manifest itself in any significant way. I mean, you mentioned going back to early when I was in China the first time in 84 to 86, you'd go to some meetings, if, if economic meetings or something, I'd be with the economic counselor. And you sort of get to see someone was sitting next to the, the chief executive officer. He was the advisor, but you more or less said he was sort of carrying, making sure the party had a, a little role on that. Uh, that changed in the 90s. We didn't see that, and certainly it's not there now. But for North Korea, I would imagine that had to permeate all aspects to it. But at the negotiating table, it was foreign ministry people, foreign ministry and people. those discussions That's were exactly right. That's exactly right. And um, how did you see that those interactions go? The Chinese and the Russians, the Chinese and the Japanese. Um, how was that for them to manage on their side? You know. I personally think Wang Yi and uh, Wu Dawei and Ning Fu Kui, Fu Ying, and they all did a great job. At least it wasn't um, apparent that there was any uh, re- reluctance or if there was any element of uh, preferential treatment. We'd rather work with the Americans rather than, let's say, the Russians. No, we didn't see that. I mean, the Russians were at the table for all these meetings. The Japanese were very much players in this I mean, because it's in Japan's interest. They came so close to normalizing. In 2002, with uh, Kim Jong-il and the visit of Koizumi, Prime Minister Koizumi, but they had the abductee issue, which is still on the table there. Uh, I thought they dealt with the Japanese representatives uh, extremely professionally, and the same thing with the Russians. But when we didn't have plenary meetings, uh, we didn't see much of the Russians, to be very honest with you on that. But but the Japanese were always going to be there. And uh, And I just want to retell my own interaction with the six-party talks. I was in the policy planning staff, and we were working on the working group for the Northeast Asia Peace and Security Mechanism, yes. which the Russians were hosting. They were hosting that. And the Russians did a wonderful job of hosting, although I do remember that one lunch, quote-unquote, was basically just vodka and caviar. <laughs> and they, in the actual discussions, what, they weren't really adding much. The Russians were on kind of what the organization could look like or what the different mechanisms could be to have countries in the region understand each other or have some sort of framework? Uh, I I thought the six-party process really brought the countries together, uh, and we weren't beating up on North Korea. There was never the—and China made sure that was never the case. You felt like if there was a document to be circulated beforehand, 
it was done in, in as timely fashion as possible, understanding that some parties like the North Koreans or others might not sign off on it to the last second. As the host, as the chair, you can't control all of that. But broadly speaking, you thought the Chinese as the chair or the hosts were as even as they could be in trying to make sure all members of the six-party talks were aware of what was going on and were knowledgeable and working off the same same sheet of music? Absolutely. There, there, no doubt in my mind that. I, I think it was somewhat difficult for the Chinese, occasionally with the North Koreans, because they tend to be sometimes temperamental or they get mixed signals from Pyongyang. Uh, but I would imagine they would the Chinese probably felt the same about the Americans. <laughs> they, they, we wouldn't they, answer. We'd have to get clearance from Washington. We're not or, sure yeah. where they're going, and you know they, they're insisting on these things. We can't we can't get the North Koreans to give on. So can't both sides. And in many ways, they were trying to bring both sides. Both sides being the United States and North Korea. Can't you compromise on some of this? Can't we find language that brings us closer together? I think they were so happy there was a joint statement. Great, it must have been great disappointment in two, the end of 2008 when that fell apart because they put so much, they invested so much into this, but understandably invested so much into it. This is the Korean Peninsula. I mean, this is China's neighborhood. And, you know, going back to the Korean War, and we, we, we know, and, and there needs to be peace on the Korean Peninsula. And when we eventually look at unification, uh, uh, peaceful reunification is, is, is obviously in everyone's interest. You know, China has a lot in this um, negotiation. They took the lead because China was ready to take the lead. It's their region and everything like that. But I emphasize that it's their region. They need to. T- they need to ensure that it. You know, it transpires in a way that will not be inimical to their national security interests. One of the issues that is kind of on again and off again is when things are bad with North Korea, the U.S. side often pushes doing contingency planning with the Chinese. If there's some collapse in North Korea, how can we kind of prepare for that? And in general, the Chinese side has resisted doing that for the idea of not signaling that they don't have faith in the North Korean regime or that somehow China is undermining North Korea's right to exist as entity as a separate separate country. During your time in, in the special envoy role, did you notice any change in the Chinese view, um, kind of those sorts of things of what people were willing to even whisper or say, or really was it Chinese uh, united front uh, within, <laughs> within their negotiation was, we're dealing with North Korea, we're sitting here around the table, we're gonna all get to a place we're all happy with, that's why we're here. These other things are a distraction. I do believe that was their approach. Uh, we occasionally we would say, well, let's talk about, it. and they said, no, no, or let's have a separate, no, no, no. We need to be transparent to the North Koreans for the reasons you cite. Uh, we don't want the North Koreans thinking we're ganging up on them. Uh, we want them to know that, you know, this is a level playing field and we're uh, working in that way. Uh, on the other hand, it was the North Koreans who would tell, let's say, the U.S., yours truly, because I, you know, I spent years in China and I knew some of the negotiators there, and we would speak Chinese and so forth, and the North Koreans would occasionally would remind me, saying, you know, you're dealing with us, with North Koreans. So you've got to focus a little more here, focus on us here, and be realistic. Because, you know, the North Koreans tend to be uh, blunt. <laughs> uh, you know, that we've had some bad times, but we want to ensure that this process lends itself ultimately. And I emphasize this because I, I think this is where they are in 2018 ultimately to a normal relationship with the United States. And not to use words that we used in the past, we will, we will be a responsible stakeholder. But they always had a condition. 
And that condition was, accept us as a nuclear weapon state. Treat us the way you treat Pakistan. We will be responsible, and we would say, look, ultimately we would like to see normal relations. There are a lot of issues that have to be resolved, but not as a nuclear weapon state. The proliferation issue is just so massive. It's not only that we distress you that you would use weapons against your allies or our allies and us or our uh, partners, but that some of that material could leak out and get into the hands of bad actors. And, uh, and, and North Korea with nuclear weapons would, would end up having other countries seek their own nuclear weapons capability. So we're talking about a nuclear, uh, nuclear arms race in East Asia. Is this, what, this is not what we want. And certainly this is where China and the U.S. were totally in sync on this, well, and, and indeed Japan and South Korea also. But again, we would hear it from South Korea privately, and they would say, look, if, if it ends up with North Korea retaining nuclear weapons, you think we're just going to sit here and, and, and be content with your extended nuclear deterrence uh, commitments to the Republic of Korea? No, I think we'll... So that was the reality. Speaking of political realities, I think one of the challenges the Chinese system had is dealing with a democratically elected government in South Korea. It seems to me sometimes the Chinese reaction for things that uh, uh, elected officials had to do in South Korea was not always one of understanding. And so they put an incredible amount of pressure, for example, on the South Koreans to not yes. deploy yes. missile defense. And yet, for any elected government to say, oh, we're, we're not going to pursue something that might make our country safer is something you can't do. China's gotten a more sophisticated understanding right. of the United States than I think of other right. democratic systems. But do you see a kind of fundamental challenge in some ways if China is playing a leadership role in diplomatic efforts in their side, understanding what other countries kind of have to do with, deal with domestically? So you, you could see this is where negotiations come into play. This is where trust is so important in any relationship. And the North Koreans tell us we lack that element in our relationship with them, but we have it with China. We've had, you know, since 72. I mean, but, you know, we're talking about years of working closely. So there should be trust when we, we spend a little more time explaining the THAAD. Now, China did react to the THAAD deployment, uh, you know, to the, uh, to the detriment of South Korea. I mean, South Korea took a big hit on that, economic hit on that. Could we all have done that better? Because North Korea then sits back and watches this. Because the sense we had, I have I've, I've been watching North Korea, as you know, for many years, even before I became a negotiator, is that they would, you know, if they could put a, a wedge between the United States and South Korea, that's great. The United States and China, that's even better. So let's show we're, we, we, we are cohesive on these issues that transcend uh, the respective countries' interests, but are important for the region. For the, for the uh, international community writ large. And that's ensuring that there are no, there are no nuclear weapons in North Korea with d delivery systems that could permit those weapons to uh, be used. There, there are a number of issues here. You know, I think when we do, eventually do a post-mortem, and uh, probably, hopefully, when we get it this issue resolved fully, we've had two successes, but they were very temporary successes, but we have 25 years of failure, therefore. But we need finally, and now we're sort of almost on the cusp. I, I would have said six months ago we were on the cusp of having uh, a peaceful resolution to this. Uh, I, I, I'm still there. I still, I'm not sure if it's the cusp any longer because I think we're going to need a little more time and a little more patience, and, and, but more perseverance because we can get there. We can, we can be successful with the, uh, with the North Korea issue. You know, James, when you look at the Middle East and you look at some other regions, 
And you look at the, uh, the, the internecine conflicts, whether it be religious uh, or tribal or what have you, and then you look at the Korean Peninsula, and you look at North Korea, and it's the nuclear issue. And you have a leader, Kim Jong-un, who's a you know, young man, 33, who's studied in Switzerland. He's saying, you know, if that's the only issue, we should be able to sort of get that. To, and he's got a government and, and people in South Korea who want unification. You would think we could get there. We'll be naive to believe that this is going to be like Libya. It's going to be done, you know, we could do this in a year. Come on. You don't spend decades building a nuclear capability and billions of dollars. And then you're just going to give it away. And then once you give it away, what are you going to give me in return? I don't think so. That's why in the six-party talks we said, very clearly, you asked about the joint statement, actions for actions, commitments for commitments. Because we knew, and the Chinese would always be telling us, but we also knew from dealing with the North Koreans, if we want them to do something, they're going to have to get something in return. I wanted to ask you about your just stepping back on lessons learned for negotiating kind of with China, and I guess that's both sense of the word with. In much of the six-party talks, we and the Chinese had very similar goals, and so it was much more shoulder-to-shoulder. Other times, negotiating with is kind of negotiating against. Right. Uh, are there lessons for negotiating with China that we should kind of keep in mind going forward? You'd mentioned trust as an important issue. But with China, I, I think so. Uh, no, I, I really do. And again, I, I kept using the word mutual, and I, I think we, we, when, when there is mutual interest, certainly on, uh, on, on global issues that touch nations, whether it's economic security, national security, and nuclear security, whatever it is, I think we come together on that. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound too Pollyanna-ish, but I, you know, history is important. And, and for China, it's contemporary history, and I think Xi Jinping has been talking about that. that and and, and uh, I think I do think it resonates with the people, but it's a reality. And now they're on a path, uh, and you know I I I applaud that. I I think Deng Xiaoping was a, was a great leader, and and now having said that, I I then would have to balance that by saying okay. And we should understand that. But then conversely, I think China has to understand, the leadership at least has to understand that, okay, but there are parameters. And, and we have our values also. We have core interests. You know, we have core interests. We have core interests. And that's where negotiations come. That's where trust comes. Confidence building, building and establishing the trust. I think we just need to spend more time, more time uh, working some of these very, very uh, uh, important issues, I, you know, sensitive, yes, everything is sensitive, but important issues at all levels. Um, and I think a little more um, th- that's not just in the press. I think it, you re- it resonates more, I think, with China when you can, you build that trust and everything. It's not that we're doing anything uh, behind anyone's back. It's that we're negotiating. We're going. We're, you know, we're making the sausage now. People don't have to see how you make it. It's the result. Is this, is this going to be nourishing? Is it going to be good and all that? It's the result. I think we have to be. I think we need more people who are deep on these issues here. I think the lesson learned here is that you have to stay the course. You should not be polemical. You should not be disparaging. Uh, you should not be uh, 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 arrogant. Uh, uh, you need to know history, respect history, but you need to be true to yourself and, and, and in this case for the United States, the people of the United States, our values. 
And I think what China appreciates, this is the, the, the core lesson I learned from dealing with the Chinese, more so than other countries I've dealt with, uh, is they appreciate candor. If you're candid, if you're fair, you're objective, and you're candid, we, they could work with you on it. How did China loom in your time in DNI um, in terms of both North Korea, but then also these other kind of less contact yeah. uh, with them because I moved out of the negotiation uh, side of it. But on, on counterproliferation issues, I would uh, visit and had some contact on that uh, with them on that. So there was it wasn't intimate a- any longer. But on uh, counter non-prolifera- mainly non-proliferation issues, but also counterproliferation issues. Because with the National Counterproliferation Center, we were, the concern was implementing the sanctions, ensuring that uh, you know uh, nuclear weapons uh, do not get into the hands of bad actors. I mean, there were contentious issues. We weren't always in sync on the issues. The Chung'an thing, uh, uh, we know North Korea did that. 47 sailors died, North Korea did it. And you kind of say, in issues like that, China felt, okay, so you know it, we know it. But what are we going to do, beat them up on it? Don't we want to get them back to the talk? And then, of course, we had Kim Jong-un come in in 2011, the end, but 2011. So there was a period of moving forward. Do you want to, should we try to turn a page, which we tried to do? We weren't successful in turning that page. So um, uh, I dealt probably a little more with the North Koreans during my time with the ODNI, uh, because I was involved with the release of the two journalists in 2009, arranged for the... uh, President uh, Bill Clinton to go and return with the two journalists, spent uh, hundreds of hours with the North Koreans on this, and negotiating with the North Koreans requires extreme patience, because you think you have an agreement today, and then tomorrow it looks a little different. You say, no, wait a minute. How come that's looking a little different than yesterday? Well, you did mean that. No, that's not what I meant. So uh, patience is necessary, uh, but it was interesting working with the North Koreans on those issues. I was a little disappointed to see what no, uh, the speed with which, uh, and not too surprised, however, the speed with which Kim Jong-un was racing to acquire a nuclear weapons, which he did in 2017, but he turned the page on 1 January 2018 saying, I want to focus on economic development. I want to have a good relationship with the United States, South Korea. And that's the uh, Moon Jae-in summits and now uh, and President uh, Donald Trump's summit. And, uh, and that's where we are right now. We're at a, a very important inflection point because we could be successful here and hopefully we will be successful. It sounds like you're kind of cautiously optimistic on the yeah. North Korea front. On the U.S.-China front, where are you? How, how, how do you see both yeah, those two going know, forward? You know, um, having uh, been sort of a China watcher for decades, a little disappointed right now to hear, and I alluded to that a few minutes ago, James, when I talked about to hear some people on the on the China side or even on the U.S. side talk about the inevitability of conflict, and and you say this is this is unreal. This is this can't can't be. I mean, we were there for China, and I, China, I think China and the people of China appreciate that, and 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 we have so many issues that we have a commonality of interest on. Why are we talking about, why can't we, you know, economic competitiveness is fine. Why, you know, we can resolve, even the South China Sea, that's, that's what negotiators do, right? You negotiate these issues, East China Sea, and so forth. No, and no one wants to uh, impose on uh, the sovereign rights of any nation. 
But we have our values, and uh, they speak to human rights issues. And so we have a right to articulate those and so forth. Obviously not to impose them, but to articulate them and, and make that part of who we are, as a, as a, obviously, as a people. But they, they seem to be a, a myriad of issues that have uh, percolated to the top. Well, it's not only trade. We're talking about now Confucius centers in the United States and what they're doing with the media and how they want to uh, monitor this and that and everything. Well, uh, you know, uh, if there are elements there that are of concern, that they need to be discussed. They need to be negotiated. They need to be... And I feel sitting down with the Chinese, you can discuss this and you can find common ground and you can move forward. But I think now we're, uh, it's uh, with people on both sides talking about the possibility of a new Cold War. And if, if I was sitting in Moscow, I would be saying, this is, this is pretty good news. I mean, this is, let's you know, let them go at it. I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing? So, uh, yeah, if there, there are issues. We table the issues and we work the issues, but let's ensure that we, we, uh, we, we come together as a people and we work these issues of common uh, concern. And those that are elements of tension between uh, our respective countries, work hard on them, resolve them. So I think we, we need to put much more time into the China issue. And it's not just headlines. It's not just a two-month study that comes out and says this and that and everything. This is a 24-7 and, and so forth. And conversely, that's from the US side. But I, and I believe China understands this. And they need to put more time into where we are on these issues here. Because the, uh, the American people uh, will not, uh, and whether it's the business sector, whether it's the private sector, will not sit down uh, and just tolerate if it's uh, intellectual property issues there or censorship issues there that touch, that touch the United States. So I think both countries need to do a much better job on bilateral relations. Master Trani, so great to see you. Thanks for all of your views and sharing your very deep experience, particularly on the Six Party Talks. Uh, Thank you helpful. so much. Thanks. Thanks for what you're doing. Ambassador Joseph Detrani, speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.